Hello and welcome to the Art and Fiction Podcast. I'm your host, Carol Cram, and in this episode, I'm delighted to share with you my conversation with Helene Mario, the author of three suspense novels, including The Lost Concerto and Dark Rhapsody, both listed in the music category on Art and Fiction. Helene Mario brings to her writing a long career working for non-profit boards and giving back to numerous charities, particularly through the Helene and Ronald Mario Fund. All the royalties from her book sales go to programs that support reading programs and the well-being of children and families. When it comes to writing, Helene wants more than anything to tell a good story, create characters with depth, and paint pictures with words. She wants to be a storyteller forever. Welcome to the Art and Fiction Podcast, Helene. Thank you. I am so pleased to be here, Carol. I love the website. Oh, well, thanks so much. I'm really excited to chat with you today about your series of thrillers. Two novels in the series have been published, and both are featured on Art and Fiction in the music category. So The Lost Concerto is the first novel in the series, and it introduces us to the main characters who we will meet in subsequent novels. And then your second novel, Dark Rhapsody, also brings in a lot of elements of the visual arts, which, of course, I loved. Your novels are thrillers, but the arts play such a major role, which I think is why I enjoyed them so much. So can we start off by you telling us about the series as a whole? You know, your inspiration for writing it, why thrillers? Okay. As a child, I was just a huge reader, but never considered writing at all never expected to, and worked in an insurance company and did my thing. Ended up, um, when I married, I had two children, and I became a volunteer. had several volunteer jobs, and in each volunteer job, I found that I gravitated toward the writing part of the job. I would volunteer to be the secretary or whatever it was. And I like to say now that really my passion for writing found me because it always pulls me into that part. But it was all nonfiction. I started writing for my local newspaper in Connecticut. That was nonfiction. And then when we moved to um, Maryland, just outside of D.C., I ended up working for Alan Tipper Gore for all eight years. Oh, wow. That must have been very exciting. Oh, I, I loved it. It was an exciting time in my life and a real giving back time. And uh, I wrote a lot for them. However, it was all nonfiction. So I just felt as if something was missing. And by now, I was well into my 40s, I suppose. And that is what brings me finally to fiction. I, I can remember very well sitting by the water. And I had a newspaper. And I happened to see a picture of a fellow, a gray, black and white photograph of, of a man. And I thought, wow. What if, what if a woman picked up the newspaper and saw a photo of her first love decades later? And at that moment, I I grabbed a pencil and wrote on that newspaper, I wrote the prologue to The Lost Concerto. Oh my goodness, what a great story. The first time my daughter heard me give an interview, she heard that story. She had never known that's where it was from. But to, to, to go on, when you start a novel, as you know very well, prologue will only get you 10 pages out of 400, Mm -hmm. 90,000 words, and that is a lot. So you really need, um, you need inspiration. Well, that brings me to inspiration, I suppose. And what I'd like to say first is that just look at the definition 
of inspiration, to inspire, to breathe in. And I love that because that says it all. It says you're breathing in all the sounds and images and scents around you. Oh, wonderful image. Yes, I love that. It's a very good image. And so that is the trigger for inspiration for me. And it is actually the very first and most often asked question I get, what inspires me. And I bet it's similar for you as well. And I I always say that there's an easy answer and a hard answer. And the easy answer is for all of us, whether whatever we write, you read the newspaper, you watch the news, you go to the theater, uh, read plays and poetry and travel. All of these things inspire us. But then there are the, the more consequential things. And for me, it was something I loved. I wanted to write about something I loved, and that was music. And at the time, my son played classical piano. It was so interesting to me because I grew up, Carol, in the 50s and and 60s, and it was all rock and roll and jazz and folk music and maybe Broadway. I never was interested in classical music, never studied it. But when my son began to study it, and he was very, very good, I would stop what I was doing and I'd listen to him practice. And that's when I fell in love with classical music and all the greats. And that is really where my pianist, Maggie O'Shea, the character comes from listening to my son practice the piano all those years ago. And of course, at the heart of the novel is Maggie O'Shea, who is a concert pianist. And as a pianist myself, although not on that level, I so enjoyed your depictions of her playing and also of her not playing, because the first novel really is all about her not being able to play. She's a wonderful character. She's so feisty, and yet she's super vulnerable. Thank you. And can you tell us a little bit more about Maggie and, of course, the role that grief plays in your development of her? Sure. Um, Well, with Maggie, I always gravitated when I was reading toward novels of romantic novels, suspense novels, espionage, but always a strong woman who would be flawed but she would have to learn sometimes where her strengths came from. And I tried to write a woman who would run towards something, who would try to do the right thing. And that's really the basis for her. I started with her. She was grieving um, the loss of her husband, and he died in a, a tragic way. And what happened was she had been playing the Greek concerto when he died. And the whole thing really takes her music away from her. She just is unable to play music anymore. And so the title, The Lost Concerto, is not only about music that has been lost, but about Maggie being lost and Maggie losing her music and how she finds herself again. And that's a theme in all my books, moving forward, finding your inner self kind of, kind of theme. Well, yes, and one of the quotes I read about uh, Dark Rhapsody, your second novel, as much about art as music, Dark Rhapsody reveals the transformative power of both. And of course, that hit home for me because that's what I believe as well is the transformative power of art. So your novels are much more than thrillers. They are thrillers. There are lots of chills and thrills and, you know, what's going to happen. I've lost a bit of sleep already reading your two novels. (laughs) Oh, no, what's she going to do now? But uh... (laughs) Well, thank you. (laughs) 
But I think what, well, I know what elevates your novels beyond common thriller is this depth you put in because of the art. Thank you. Yes, I always say uh, I masquerade as a thriller, but I'm really a story of romance and love and courage. And I think the women or the readers who enjoy my novels really want that depth of character and going beyond. I think so too. And as I said, that's what really sets you apart, in my opinion, from a lot of thrillers I've read. I haven't read that many thrillers by women writers, I realize. And I now I'm going to read more because I think there is a, just a different point of view that is brought to them. Yes. And there aren't that many of us. No, there's not really, are there? We need more. There were. Back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, we had uh, Mary Stewart and Helen Innes and Evelyn Anthony. And those were really my first inspirations. As I said, I never took a writing class, but I learned what I wanted to write about. And I learned about dialogue and, and history and plot setting for these women, I would say. Yes. And well, I think most of us of a certain era remember Mary Stewart very, very well. She was great. <laughs> well, there, there's an inspiration for writers uh, who are listening to this. Write thrillers, <laughs> especially if you're women, because uh, there is uh, certainly a need for more thrillers, I think, written from the female perspective. Uh, and I've read both of them now. And as I said, I've really enjoyed how you've developed your characters, particularly Maggie, and then of course, Colonel Beckett and Agent Sugarman, who I love. I do too. And he gets a little romance and Dark Rhapsody, which is wonderful. Yes, in fact, when you mentioned that, that you might ask me to read a couple of pages, the pages I chose to read will be Agent Sugarman. Okay, good. Well, we'll get to that in a moment. Because I just also wanted to say that I read your two novels the wrong way around. I started with Dark Rhapsody, and now I've just finished The Lost Concerto. And I really have to compliment you how I was able to do that easily and thoroughly enjoyed both of them. So they don't actually have to be read in order. Uh, was that in your, was that your intention? You know, my intention when I wrote The Lost Concerto was never to write a sequel. Ah. <laughs> and then readers started saying to me, you've got to let me know what happens next to Maggie. And I realized that I wanted to know what happened next to Maggie as well. And that is how Dark Rhapsody was born. So you didn't start off planning to write a series? Never. No, I did not. It was just a response. And then I realized how much I loved Maggie and I felt as if we weren't done yet, that there was more of her story to tell. I think that's wonderful. It, it grew organically rather than planning it out because it feels like it's planned out and yet, you know, it's not. And I know you you have two more coming? I just sold my next, the third one in the series, which is called Shadow Music. Ooh. And this week, I actually wrote the prologue for the fourth in the series. Oh, fantastic. Well, I can hardly wait. <laughs> and before I leave talking about the novels per se, I've got to put in a plug for one of my favorite characters, which is Shiloh. Oh, yes. You and I had a previous conversation and you mentioned that Shiloh has become a favorite of your fans. So can you tell us a bit about oh, him? Oh, I'm happy to. It, the thing, Carol, is that um, the first draft of The Lost Concerto was terrible. 
It was awful. I got many rejections. And so I put it in a drawer and I slammed the drawer and locked it and walked away. And I didn't write for a year. I, I ran a foundation. I did other things. And then those characters just kept knocking on the door to get out. <laughs> I knew it was a good bones, good bones of a story. So finally, I, I broke down. I pulled it out and I almost broke it down to the, the bare rafters. I started from scratch again. And I gave Maggie more of a, a motive. She wasn't just looking for a missing child. She was looking for her godchild. You know, these kinds of things. And the colonel was in the first um, manuscript, but he was a loner and very crusty and belligerent. And I came up with Shiloh because I have a friend who rescued dogs and found a three-legged, three-legged golden. So when I started writing Shiloh, gave him to the colonel, it gave the colonel so much humanity and humor and someone to talk to when he was by himself. And it really uh, took off from there. And now I, I just have to keep Shiloh healthy. <laughs> you do. Yes. Don't let anything happen to Shiloh. Yeah. And if, if people didn't get that, Shiloh was the dog. Yes, the golden retriever. <laughs> well, and I'm a dog lover, so I... Uh... I thoroughly enjoyed that. He's fun to write. Really fun to write. Oh, I bet. Yes. And also, just from a writing perspective, that is a really interesting technique, even if you didn't really do it consciously as a technique, but to humanize a character by adding something that they love, like a dog or a child. Exactly. You have to make your people real. And that is a good way to do More it. More personal motive to make it make them real that way really helps. And another thing that helps make the characters real are giving them these little quirks. For instance, um, talk about inspiration again. I got a cheap catalog in the mail, and it had a T-shirt with a music quote on it, piano player. And that was the inspiration for all of Maggie's collection of music quote T-shirts. Those are so much fun. Yes, practically every other scene, she's got a different T-shirt on with a different musical saying. <laughs> yes, and those, they are fun. The other thing about inspiration, um, for me, and every author will give you a different answer, but I didn't write what I knew. I wrote what I love. And that's where all the performing arts come in, the art and music and theater and dance. But th the thing about inspiration is you also need that little spark of madness. When I look at inspiration, it goes hand in hand with research because you can only go so far. And if, for instance, I cannot play the piano. So I started, I can't even find middle C. I started reading everything I could lay my hands on about music. And what the research did, it opened up plot for me because as about music, I started reading about missing music. And then I started reading about missing music from World War II. And I read about Hitler, who banned music by Jewish composers. He still had those 78 RPM albums in his bunker. And they worn down to the groove from him listening to them. So the more research you do, the more you come across these, even if only 10% works up into your novel, you still have this beautiful background to draw from. And that's such excellent advice, that research is not just to find out a particular thing. 
to be open when you're researching. Exactly, exactly. I, I love that part. Just kind of reading and want, hoping that something will fall into place. And it often does, <laughs> surprisingly. Yes, you're exactly right. And, and the other thing is, it could take you in a totally different direction. Plot is the hardest thing. But if, if I read something and it fires those little sparks, then off you go. And it opens up new, new things. And plot, of course, plays, well, plot plays a role in all novels, but, you know, your novels are, are very closely plotted. So do you actually plan that out ahead of time or do you kind of see where it goes? <laughs> there are two schools of thought and most writers fall into either the, the outline everything or see how it goes, throw it against the wall, you know, and I certainly am a fly by the seat of my pants person. I start with a bit of an outline, but then the characters take over. That is the truth. Well, I'm glad to hear it. That's good, because I kind of do that myself. I, I, I sort of do both, and I've heard from both. Like I've Many authors say, oh, no, no, I, I outline really long, extensive outlines. I go, oh, I don't do that. Maybe I should. So it's kind of nice to hear another author, a successful author, say, no, you don't do it that way. And it does show you how really there is no right way. I agree. And I find you just have to do what works for you. And I usually end up writing my outline after the story has been written. And I never know how it's going to end. But I've also heard many um, authors say, well, if you don't know how it's going to end, then certainly the reader won't know how it's going to end. So it's going to be a great surprise. I had the idea originally that I was going to have a, a young man show up you know, a prep school kind of guy with long blonde hair and whatever, came time to write the scene. And I was in a prison yard. I found myself in a prison yard and the door opened and this sort of juvie Russian kid swaggers in and it changed everything for me. Oh, wow. And the other thing is, I never know how my novels will end. So when I, Dark Rhapsody, which you just read, I planned a totally different ending that novel and I don't want to give anything away. No. Needless to say, somebody was going to die by gunshot and that did not happen. Oh. Well it worked well. There is one more character I, I want to ask you about, which of course is the character that all thrillers in particular need, and that is your villain. Oh yes. And you have a particularly wonderful villain. Thank you. Dane. Thank you. Ooh, every time he shows up, you go, no. <laughs> And yet, he's not, I mean, he's evil, but you have made him a real person. Thank you. Um, he was probably the hardest character for me to write because he scared me. Yeah. I don't like to go to places where I get scared. And I, I just believe that almost every human being is a mix of good and bad and just how we're natured and nurtured and... I wanted to have him have layers. And I, I tried to make him very frightening, but at the same time, explain why he was the way he was. And you know, one of the things that I really found humanized him, even if it was quite chilling, was his love of Shakespeare. Yes. Because you bring that in there a lot. He was an actor. Yes, exactly. And it really worked for him to, the sense of taking on a role, taking on a persona for the kind of uh, work that he did or his, the um, brutality. It, it was very clever to have Shakespeare 
you know, the wonderful Shakespeare actually be twisted that Thank way. You. Thank you. It's an interesting thing when you write sequels, especially if you didn't plan to, what characters you need to hold on to. And then, well, could I talk a little bit about a sequel? Am I jumping in? Sure. Oh, no, go for it. Yeah. Okay. Well, the thing about the sequel for me, since I had not planned on it, I was terrified that I couldn't come up to the first book, that the readers would have enjoyed the story a certain way and would expect the same thing from me again. And honestly, I was afraid I might not be able to do it. Mm -hmm. I went to my publisher and I asked her for advice. And what she told me worked very well. She said, if you have a, a, a readership and they want to know what happens next to the character that they have fallen in love with. But you have to build on that character. To keep your readers interested, you have to add new layers. And I thought that was very powerful advice. And I really tried to take it and given Maggie different challenges in each book. I think that's worked well. The other thing I learned in the sequel, I was so, again, afraid of not being able to, to write as well as I could, but by bringing in new characters. Oh my gosh, Carol, it opened up a whole new world of story for me. Mm -hmm. Robbie Brennan, Father Robbie Brennan, gave me a way of exploring faith through a character's eyes. And my character Gigi, who's in her 80s, uh, a legendary pian pianist, she let me explore aging, which I've been thinking about a lot. And you yes. already mentioned Maggie's grief. And so I've been able to explore not just grief, but how we handle life when things go wrong. Not only primary characters, but secondary characters really, really fill out a novel, at least to me. Yes, they do. And uh, I really enjoyed the fact that you had all these new characters in the second novel. As I said, I read the second novel first. That's okay, but it worked. Good. When you write the, the sequel, you are doing a balancing act between the people that have already read the first one and people who are new to you. Mm -hmm. Don't want to spoil it for the new people. And you're really trying to bring them up to speed without blowing any good reveals. You know, that was a challenge. Time for a short break. Are you interested in creating a podcast? If so, then check out Buzzsprout. You'll find a ton of information about how to start and run a podcast, and you'll get your podcast listed on every major podcast platform. When I decided to start the Art and Fiction podcast, I needed help, and I found it with Buzzsprout. You'll learn everything you need to know to start a podcast and then get it out into the world. When you're ready to start your own podcast, follow the link in the show notes and you'll receive a $20 Amazon gift card when you sign up for a paid plan. And now back to the show. So uh, we talked earlier about you would do a little reading for us. So could you? Yes. So uh, we talked earlier about you would do a little reading for us. So could you uh, set it up? So I chose two characters from Dark Rhapsody. It's a scene that shows not only how I set up a scene, but it shows the way I do settings and, and, and how I do dialogue. Simon Sugarman is a 
Department of Justice agent who has been searching for a woman named Hannah. Hannah he finds in Vienna. She is a blind cellist and she has her own service dog, uh, a greyhound named Jacques. And it's a Friday night and she is Jewish and she invites Sugarman to her apartment for Sabbath. And I'll just read you uh, just two, two pages from it. Perfect. The candles flickered to life. Hannah extended her hands over the flames, drawing her palms inward three times in a graceful circular motion. She covered her eyes and began to recite the blessing. He was unexpectedly moved by her words, by the beauty of her carved face beneath her veil, her narrow hands as they circled the firelight in the shadows, drawing the light into her eyes, eyes that could not see. It was one of the most beautiful moments he could remember. He felt as if he had just stepped back in time into a home in ancient Jerusalem. He glanced at the front door, half expecting Moses to enter the room in long flowing robe. The prayer was brief, low, and musical. Then she opened her eyes and said, Good Shabbos, Simon. Good Shabbos, Hannah Hoffman. I love the candles, Hannah said into the silence. They symbolize family, warmth, and dreams. Prayer. Wherever you are, the candles make it home. For me, she said, firelight takes away the darkness. She fixed her eyes on him like blue flames underwater. For me as well, my world is mostly dark, she told him. But sometimes I perceive light, flickering, shadows. She turned away. I am a woman in shadows. We have more in common than I realized, he said. But he thought, all I see is light when I look at you. His eyes touched on the cello behind her, and he heard himself say, while we wait for Maggie, would you play something for me? Of course. I promised you only good this evening, did I not? I think, yes, you will enjoy Dvorak's cello concerto. Dvorak always said that the penale should end gradually, like a breath. Listen for it. You can play music on Shabbat? She smiled. Every no allows a yes. Reading and music give us peace. She slipped off her veil, dropped it on the table, moved unerringly toward the cello. Grasping the long neck, she sat in a straight back chair and settled the instrument between her knees. As if it were a signal, Jacques rose and came to settle at her feet, her smooth, narrow head close to Hannah's thigh. Hannah lifted the bow with a soft sigh. And then, in a moment so intimate and intense that Sugarman caught his breath, she simply wrapped her body around the cello. Dark Rhapsody thought Sugarman come to life. For a heartbeat of silence, there was only this beautiful woman, dark head bowed, lit by the flicker of candlelight. Then, with a slight nod and a dip of her shoulder, she stroked the bow across the strings and began to play. Oh my goodness. Oh, that's wonderful, Elaine. That's a wonderful uh, snippet of your writing style, which is fabulous. I thoroughly enjoyed that. Thank you. I really try to paint a picture with words, Carol. That's always been what I wanted to do. Well, and, and again, that's something you do very well is your wordsmithing. Um, I, I love wordsmithing. I love playing with words. And obviously you do as well. So you're very good at... Yes, I can spend hours on one sentence. 
oh gosh, yes, can't we all? <laughs> That's my favorite part. Uh, actually, I think my very favorite part is what an editor once called the sanding. When you're going through towards the end and you're just making everything glisten. It's, that's so much fun. Oh, I like that. I like that. Yeah. I know, sanding. <laughs> I'm at that point with uh, my current one that's just about to go out. For me, the most difficult part is plot and kind of seeing the whole novel in my head. Yes. Some people, they start a novel and they know exactly, as we talked about earlier, they can see it in their head. I can't. And I do tend to waste a lot of time trying to get to that point. But once you do. Yes. You have to find that, that heart of the novel, that moment that transforms it into something more. And whether it comes from plot or character or something else, I don't know. And yeah, and there's no magic bullet. You really just have to work. You're exactly right. You're I hope that <laughs> touch of madness every once in a while. <laughs> I know. Yeah, well, it, it's a lot of fun, though. Why do we do it? Well... Yes because we can't not do it's it. It's exactly right. So I just want to talk a little bit more about the business of writing uh, and marketing. Yes. These days, whether you're published or not, uh, you have to do quite a bit of your own marketing. So can you just share what you do? Sure. I um, have I've written a total of four books. One of them, Firebird, published by, by myself. Or at least I hired someone to publish it for me. It was self-publishing. Was relatively inexpensive and uh, it's very quick. It went up online very quickly and the costs were minimal and I had total control, which means I could choose the cover, I could choose what I edited, I could choose what I charged for the book. What I did not realize is how much marketing I should have done that I didn't. So the novel did very well at the beginning and it was a standalone novel and peaked and then sort of fell to the floor because I didn't understand that how much marketing was needed. Now, the next three books I've sold to a publisher traditionally. And the biggest surprise there is that uh, two big surprises, really. You don't own the novel anymore, first of all. So I was asked for my opinion about a book cover. But of course, the publishers will choose the cover. They'll choose just everything else about the book. And also I thought I would was free of marketing, but oh no, it's a mid-sized publisher and you still have to do your share of marketing. I'll put in for awards or um, I do a lot of speaking to uh, libraries and book clubs, those kinds of things. You really have to get out there and try to Facebook maybe once a week. You know how that goes. It's interesting that, yeah, even when you are traditionally published, you certainly do have to uh, do your own marketing. So of the two, which one's a better experience so far? For me, I, I like having a publisher. I like that sense of family. I like the direction. I think they've done a beautiful job with the covers. and They have, yes. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm comfortable. I'm very at home. And I, I just like seeing my book in hardcover on a shelf. <laughs> I like that. I, that, is, that is nice, yes. <laughs> it made me proud. You really need an agent no matter what. So you got an agent before you sold your Maggie O'Shea novels? Well, actually, no. I, I, my agent and I parted ways because she wanted me to do domestic mysteries and thrillers. 
and I wanted I wanted to go to the world with my characters. I, you know, my books will take you to Paris and Salzburg and Vienna. I know it. I love that. <laughs> the new one is Cornwall, and just this is how I think, how I write, what I I'm writing, what I want to write, Carol. And that is also great advice. I think we have to write what we want to write. Yes, I agree with you. I have a, a little list of things I've learned, if you would like to hear them. Absolutely. My number one is write what you care about, what you would like to read. And that just worked perfectly for me. I try to make time to write every day if my grandchildren aren't <laughs> taking me away. You need to learn the tools of writing. Point of view, transition, flashbacks, limiting adverbs, which is very hard for me because I am a queen of adverbs. I, I, I say more is more, not less is more, but that's where editing comes in. That's right. And Elmore Leonard said, don't write the parts your readers will skip. <laughs> I, I just think it's brilliant. Good advice. Yes, isn't it? And you just have to keep rewriting and keep editing or sanding and polishing, as you so nicely said. Even when you think you're done, you're probably not. And that brings you to having a thick skin and a sense of humor, you know, you, because it's, you'll, you will have people that don't like your work and you hope that they'll just find something they like somewhere. But, but don't give up. Don't let those negatives stop you. Don't give up. Keep trying. And you learn that you cannot please everyone. Finally, last but not least, don't apologize. Just tell the best story you can, can tell and be true to yourself. That is what has worked for me. And that is excellent advice uh, for writing and for life. Mm -hmm. Yes. Do your best. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much, Helene, for chatting with me today. This has been just delightful. Well, Carol, it has been my honor, truly. I, I love talking about writing because all, I just remember the seven-year-old child I was curled in a rocking chair reading a book. And that feeling is so wonderful that you just want to share it with other people. You certainly do. Well, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. My guest has been Helene Mario, the author of The Lost Concerto and Dark Rhapsody, the first two novels in her gripping Maggie O'Shea mystery series. Both novels are listed in the music category on Art and Fiction at www.artandfiction.com. Be sure to check the show notes for the link to receive a $20 Amazon gift card when you sign up for a paid plan on Buzzsprout. Please follow Art and Fiction on Twitter and Facebook, and don't forget to give the Art and Fiction podcast a positive review or rating wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening.